just kidding. Glad you guys are here. Uh, we are going to now begin to get into the teaching. Before we do that, what we are in right now is in the middle of Advent. We are three weeks into Advent. It's a four-week period of time or so, give or take a week or two, uh, by which coming up to the Christmas season, whereby we remember uh, what God has done by coming into this world, by rearranging literally everything through His Son, Jesus. And so what we do for the weeks coming up to that is we do a scripture reading on Sunday mornings, and then we will light the Advent wreath. But today it's, it's lit for us already. Um, and it's a way of just reminding us of the light that's come into the world uh, through Jesus. Uh, today we'll be talking about the subject. We, so each week we've been looking at a variety of subjects. The first week we looked at the subject of hope. Last week we looked upon the fact that hope needs to be built upon uh, something of faithfulness, meaning the faithfulness of God. Today we're going to be looking at the subject of joy. Again, it's a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible. And so we'll talk about that subject and the importance of joy and how that all ties into the story of God coming into this world through Jesus in this Christmas season. So we are going to have a scripture reading by my good friend Julie. Where's Julie? She's going to come on down. She's going to read the passage for this morning. Welcome her. Thanks, Julie. Let me see. Yes. Oh, you know what? It just died. We're going to take this one. You guys got this mic here? Use my teacher voice. Can you use your teacher voice? Um, there we go. Ooh, I don't have to. Yeah. Okay. This is from Luke 2, 8 through 12. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Awesome. Thank you. So... We are concluding a year of what we've been calling the year of biblical literacy, which means we've invited you guys into kind of this process. And by the way, while I'm talking right now, if you guys need Bibles, you can raise your hand. Uh, we'll be reading a handful of passages, so make sure that you raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you guys. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, uh, this is our, our gift to you guys. Go ahead, keep it. Um, Merry Christmas. Um, we've been in this uh, throughout the year series called the Year of Biblical Literacy, which was an invitation for you to read the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. For many of you, uh, maybe you've never done that before. It's been a habit that you've not actually uh, embarked upon or actually done. Um, and so the, the big idea behind it was to invite you into the, the whole story. And our, our hopes for you was that as you engaged in this year-long process, that you would have a new profound you know, interest and in, in love for God and for the story that God has brought into this world. And uh, I, I think in a lot of ways it's fitting for us to, to finish the year of biblical literacy. In the teaching series that we've done, we, just prior to this teaching series, we went through a verse-by-verse -verse series through the Sermon on the Mount, which was the teachings of Jesus, to finish this year by really focusing upon um, the arrival, God coming into this world, 
Uh, but even more than that, where everything is heading. Because that's the story that we believe, that even though uh, the story of the Bible is all about Jesus, it, it, it keeps going until a future date. And that's, we, we're literally living in the between times of Jesus coming and being the fulfillment of all these promises, but also the future where God will one day send Jesus back into this world and make all things new again. This is the great hope that we have as followers of Jesus. Um, and as a side, before we jump in even any further, I've had a handful of people ask me, um, like, what, what are we going to do again as far as uh, reading through the Bible in 2019? My encouragement to you guys would be that if you uh, have already been, not been think, thinking about it necessarily, but to invite you into it as well, to just do the same thing all over again. Read through scripture again. And again, there's all sorts of ways in which you can do that. You can do the exact same system that we did last year, um, which that's what I would highly recommend. Um, version is a Bible app that I, you, know, you can download on any smart device. Um, there's all sorts of Bible reading programs in there. There's also the Bible Project reading program that's in there. And you can just download that on your phone, and you can have it set up so there's a daily reminder. Um, I've mentioned to you guys that the way that I've done it myself is I just spend some time in the morning, every morning, just listening to the Bible. Like, uh, that's how I learn most, is just by having an earbud in my ear, and I'll just, I'll listen to it. So I'll, um, sometimes I'll not listen as much, and sometimes I'll listen more, and so I'm kind of, throughout the year, going through phases of being sometimes books behind, and sometimes books ahead. So, and then it's just, it's all over the map. But at the end of the day, at the end of the year, I, I, my aim is to try to get to the end of the story, and I'm going on year five of doing this. I'm, it's not boasting, I'm just saying it's, I've God has allowed me to just help, help me, I should say, to just get into new habits. And it's wonderful. I love it. Um, and my invitation for you is to maybe just to, to keep, keep going. Again, maybe in five years from now, it'll be a habit that you guys will have, like a muscle. Again, you just work out, you develop, so that over time, you become somebody that just incorporates this regular, frequent, um, rhythmic storyline of the Bible into your life. And that will begin to shape you. Uh, it will transform you and shape you into the person of, of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, that's exactly what we hope for and desire to become. So my invitation for you is to maybe start this new year the same thing as we did last year, which is to begin by reading the scripture through some sort of a plan. That being said, we are going to begin this new year looking at some just important practices. Again, one of the things that we've been saying all along is that in order for us to become a certain type of person, which is what a disciple is, it's what a follower of Jesus is. is somebody that is becoming like Jesus. Um, not just somebody that knows information ab- about Jesus, but someone that's actually becoming like Jesus, is it requires practices. So let's say, for example, is in the new year, this is something that commonly people typically do at the beginning of the new year. They have these uh, desires to say, I want to get healthy. So let's say, for example, you, that's your desire. I want to get healthy. I want to get fit, get, get in shape, get fit. I want to you know, run a marathon, whatever, whatever your aspirations, your hopes are. Well, you can have a desire to do that. That's good. You can also have information about doing that, which means you read a Tim Ferriss book or, you know, listened to a podcast or something like that, figured out some sort of hacks on how to get into shape. So you got information, you got desire. So the question is, is based upon information and desire, is that enough to get you to become that type of person that's fit and healthy? Absolutely not. So it's the same thing with following Jesus. You can have information about Jesus, you can have, even have a desire to be like Jesus. Is that enough to make you like Jesus? No, unfortunately. What, what is? What, what's the third ingredient? It's practice. 
there's got to be a, a regular rhythmic practice within our life in which we begin to work these things into our lives and then begin to work them out of our lives. And the same thing on, across the board in every other field of, of education and learning. Uh, desire and knowledge is, is not enough. And so we're going to spend the beginning first few weeks of the year looking at a variety of practices that Jesus did, his followers did, that the invitation is for you and I as followers of Jesus to also do. And then in the latter part of the month, maybe in the beginning of the second month, we'll begin to look at how that plays in the context of uh, a broken, messed up, ruined society at large, uh, particularly through the book of Daniel, through the lens of Daniel, who was a faithful follower of Yahweh, who maintained his covenantal identity even in a society that had lost its mind and it was broken. He was literally living in the center of the militaristic world superpower called Babylon. And yet, even in the midst of that, even working on the payroll of the world militaristic superpower, he still maintained his covenantal identity as a follower of, of God. So we'll look at that. So I'm really excited. So hopefully the beginning of this new year will be enough information or help or at least a tools to help you guys to really practice the way of Jesus in, in society at large. So with that being said, we are concluding this year by looking at the subject of Advent, uh, particularly a variety of themes that I mentioned earlier, hope and then the faithfulness of God in which hope is built upon. And today I want to look at the subject of joy. Um, in particular, what we're going to be doing is just looking at the passage that we just read um, in the Gospel of Luke and looking at a variety of ways in which joy plays into this. So what I want to do first, I just want to read the passage and then we'll begin to take a look at the broader passage uh, as a whole and its context. As we typically do on a Sunday morning, oftentimes we just take books of the Bible, take passages, we read through them, we make comments upon them. And this is there's a, that's a big you know, way of describing that. It's just called expositional teaching. It's a way of just letting the Bible speak for itself. So with that being said, I'm going to read in Luke chapter 2. I'll pick it up at around verse 9, and I'll just um, say what the writer says. He says this, And then the angel of the Lord appeared to them, that's the shepherds who are out in their fields, keeping flock by night, as, as we just read earlier, it says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around, upon them, around them, and they were filled with fear. So obviously, you too, if you saw these light creatures, right, surround you in the middle of uh, wilderness, in the middle of the night, and you would obviously probably become absolutely terrified, which is exactly what happens here. They were terrified. Verse 10, then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all people. For unto us this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that there will be a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. So what I find interesting about this passage is there's the emphasis of good news. It's good news of great joy. It's what we bring to you. We present this to you. But it's also this invitation to joy. Because the good news is intended to bring about some direct emotional response, which they use the word joy to describe. So what I want to do before we even go any further, I'm going to let our friends from the Bible Project who can encapsulate uh, far more content than I can in a shorter amount of time with some incredible like graphics as well. So I'm going to show a little video clip. You guys all ready for that? Great. Here we go. 
mood is really great. And most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphrasune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith, or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's Spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust 
Jesus, that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. So there you go. Amen. Let's go. You guys have a great day. So that's so good. Like that's, like that's so legit right there. Um, before we jump in and begin to look at some other elements that kind of play into the storyline of that, that play into this larger subject matter of joy, um, I, I just want to make sure next week that you guys know that we go to one service. Is that correct? I just want to verify one service. And that will affect you guys because that means this service will be consumed by next service, which means it will actually be at 1030. So don't show up early. If you show up early, we're just going to put you to work. So let me just scratch what I just said. So um, make sure that you make note of that because next week, again, 1030 will be our only service. It will be a family style service, which means you bring your kiddos into the service as well. We'll have some things available. It'll be a shorter service. Again, this time of year, everything kind of slows down quite a bit. We have a lot of students, young people that are in our church that right now, as you can obviously look around by the scarcity, they're all gone. And uh, so we adjust accordingly as well. So with that being said, let's just now jump in. What I want to look at here specifically in the subject of joy is I was kind of thinking through this and considering the reality that joy is actually the opposite of fear. As the, the writer uh, dictates or describes, says, don't be afraid. But instead, I give you good news of consistent great joy. So fear and, and joy, I think they're kind of these competing realities. And so joy, you can still be in the moments of angst and whatnot, but uh, we, we see that there's a, there's a migration, a movement from uh, paralyzing fears into a status of joy. Another thing that I noticed was joy is directly linked to hope. It's the hope of good news, as the angel professes. And then finally, I think about this, that hope is really properly linked to God's faithfulness, is what we looked at last week. That the true understanding of hope, um, real hope, is as opposed to kind of a counterfeit hope. And I would suggest that many of us in culture and society at large, we we live in a society, for the most part, that is anchoring. We we cannot live um, in a place without hope, because the opposite of hope is despair. And so we're always looking for something to anchor our lives into by way of hopefulness. The problem is that if we anchor ourselves to something that is unfaithful or that will break or has an expiration date, at some point when it finally breaks or it expires, uh, we break and we expire with it. And so the invitation from the Bible is to trust the faithfulness of God. And by doing that, we find ourselves moving, living within this reality called hope, and this hope then begins to reinvigorate or invigorate something within our lives that, like what we're looking at here this morning, is this idea or this notion or emotion of, of joy. And so what I want to look at here today through the text, it, I'll just kind of give you the five things we'll look at, and then we'll just kind of backtrack and go through all of them in the passage, and we'll look at them, and we'll finish up. So as I look at this, that biblical joy actually involves, number one, an availability to all. In other words, it's not something that's for the elite, It's not something for selected groups of people. It's actually given to all. We'll come back to that. Secondly, it involves trusting God even in the midst of adverse circumstances. As the video kind of pointed out, we'll look at some examples of this. Thirdly, we see that's actually an action. It's an invitation to do something. Joyful people don't just remain uh, dormant. They do something. And uh, fourthly, uh, biblical joy also involves, to some degree, a sense of amazement, which, by the way, is the opposite of boring, being bored. (laughs) All right, uh, fifthly, 
We also see that involves worship. That biblical joy is deeply connected to this idea of proclamation, worship. All right? So let's jump into each one of these. We'll look at them as they appear in the passage, and then we'll wrap it up. Because first one, we see that this is available to all. In verse 10, we read, again, this little passage. It says, uh, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news and great joy that will be for all people. For all of the people. So we see, again, clearly, just this reality that, that, that God comes into this world. We'll actually look more at this next week because this ties into the subject of God's love, which, again, we'll focus on the, the theme of that next week. But that God so loved, as the scripture tells us, the whole world, that God's not selected, that God actually loves all people. And yet, at the same time, we also see that there's a sense where God recognizes that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all are... Have we have succumbed to some degree of sickness and illness and uh, not matching or not meeting the reality of who God is or not living consistently with the way that God created this world to be created. And the biblical word for this is the word sin, that we have all sinned. We've all missed that mark. And yet God loves all, that God comes into this world for all. And this is this a proclamation that the angel describes. It's for all people to be brought into. So the second thing that we see uh, moving right along is this involves trusting God even in the midst of uh, adverse uh, circumstances. Again, look at verse 8. It says, in, we're going to go back a little bit and uh, then we'll move forward. Luke chapter 2 verse 8 says, in the same region there were these shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. Um, what, what I find interesting about this is that their circumstances didn't change in the immediate. I mean, they were still out in the field. They were still you know, lowly shepherds, which again, you can do a little bit of background research on this, is that um, shepherds were not people of elite status in that culture, which it's kind of shocking that God actually would make himself known first to shepherds. Um, In a lot of ways, it seems very counterintuitive because if you want to proclaim a story or have some degree of street credibility, would not go to shepherds to affirm the validity of what you're about to do. But for whatever reason, God goes to those that are the outcasts of society. In fact, if you want to think of it this way, that shepherds was one of the most common forms of just way of making a living. And uh, at the end of the day, the way that the shepherds worked, um, they were Bedouins. So they would travel from one spot to another. They would not stay in one location for any length of time. And that kind of created a... Uh, a, a radical disconnect between them and the rest of society. So you'd imagine uh, somebody who spends a lot of time by themselves or technically with a bunch of sheep, um, that you would become a certain type of person, right? Somebody that for the most part, like, oh, nobody could trust, you know, that crazy guy out there who talks to sheep all day, all night long, right? But for whatever reason, these are the people to whom God says, I'm going to reveal the message, the good news that brings great joy, And then they're going to be the ones that are going to go and do something about this and to proclaim it at the initial state of all of this. But again, these guys were in these adverse circumstances. Nothing great, but they trusted what God was up to in this particular situation. Now again, this is the theme that was hinted on in the video, that we see that real joy takes place in the midst of real challenges. Um, So for example... Psalm 105, this is alluded to in the video, but I want to read this to you. Just listen to the passage. This is the psalmist's remembrance of an event that happened long before he was even born. But again, the way that Jews, for the most part, lived is they lived according to these stories. So these stories that would be retold 
and brought up in many, most cases obviously, in this particular one, the Passover story, they would have a yearly rhythm where they would celebrate this. They would remember God's involvement in their lives, in their despair, that God came to them, God rescued them, and God gave them this hope of a great future. So again, just to think about the context of this. So the children of Israel, when they were in Egypt, um, they were in a status of despair. God rescued them. He brings them out of Egypt into the wilderness. So the wilderness, again, don't think, you know, nice, posh area, you know, accommodations. It's wilderness. It's like, the, like I've said before, it's like Highway 46 at Chalamet, right? Chalamet, whatever you call it, you know, at the Y, right? Uh, on your way out to Fresno or Bakersfield. Just, it's absolute nothingness out there. This is where they were. But it was in that status that God comes to them and says, listen, one of these days I'm going to bring you into the promised land. You're going to be given everything that I have brought you out of Egypt to one day inherit. And it's in that moment that they begin to trust Yahweh for what God is about to do. So the question is, did they receive their goods yet? No. But they were able to enter into the joy of what God promised them. So this is what the psalmist remembers. Psalm 105, verses 42 to 44 says this. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. This is God. He says, so he brought his people out with joy. So his people come out with joy. His chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil. So there's a major gap between verse 43 and verse 44 of at least 40 years. At least 40 years. And he says that they were brought out with joy and then 40 years and then they were to inherit these, this, this land, this territory that God promised to them. So, so what you're seeing here is this massive amount of time frame. All right, 40 years is a long time. But before they even enter into that promised land, the land promised to them, they were experiencing joy because they had this hope that Yahweh would fulfill on what Yahweh promised he would do. There's a line in the video, and I'll just read it to you because I think it's so good. Uh, it says this, quote, The joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. Just listen to that again. The joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. Do you know that you have a future if you're a follower of Jesus? Do you know that? Do, do we live with the awareness of that? Because I think it's very easy for us to, in word, claim to be followers of Jesus, but in practice, in pr and I mean by practice, meaning like the actual playing out of our lives, live as if we're atheists, meaning we're hopeless. We don't really have any true overarching hope that compels us, moves us forward. We're just stuck in these moments, all right? And the invitation of the Bible from the very beginning to the very end is to trust this God who does profound things, to believe the message, to trust. So again, the New Testament word for this is faith. But even that word faith is, is, can be a little bit fuzzy because some would say, well, I have faith in God. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Um, because, again, I think there's a disconnect between a Hebrew understanding of faith and a Western, maybe Greek slash Roman understanding of faith. Meaning, we have these ideas where we think that we can believe in something, and yet it never really messes with our lives. It never really disrupts the way that we live our lives. And what I would suggest to you, the way that the Bible describes this concept of faith is not just an intellectual affirmation, but it's actually an all-of-life 
loyalty reset. Meaning, we become loyal, faithfully loyal to Yahweh. So what does faithful loyalness to Yahweh look like in one who claims allegiance to, to God, to Jesus? Well, I, I think it looks like having joy even in the midst of adverse circumstances. Because again, the joy of God's people, as the quote goes, is not determined by their struggles, adverse circumstances, but by their future destiny. Thirdly, uh, we see that also leads to action. Listen to uh, what Luke uh, chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 goes on to say. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds then said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and to see this thing that's happened. So again, just pointing out the obvious, that immediately when they hear the message from the angels, they're like, let's go, let's do something. Uh, And it goes on to say, verse 16, and then they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So again, they're communicating. So one of the things I was thinking about this, that joyful people, they don't just lie around uh, static, right? They don't just lie around with a lethargy. They, they become animated. They come to life. They tweet something. They Instagram story it. They do something. They promote it. They shout it. They get excited about something that's happened to them. So again, for example, let's say if it's a gal, she gets engaged, or somebody that find out that they're going to have a child, or they get a job, or, some, or you graduate, you just finally discover that even in light of not knowing for sure if you're going to graduate, you find out, I'm going to graduate. All of these things become moments in your life that actually begin to stimulate and create joy. And you don't just like sit around on that news. You go out and you shout it, you communicate it, you go celebrate it, you go have a double latte or whatever. You go sit down with some friends and you tell them, this is what's happened in my life. Because that's what joyful people do. Joyfulness. One of the ways in which you can identify. And again, this is radically different than just simply acting joyful. And, and I would even suggest that, that that plasticky, shallow, joyful expression that oftentimes gets, that can get promoted within Christian circles is, look, at, at, at some point that just kind of runs its course and it just needs to go by the wayside. I'll give you an example. I remember years and years and years ago, there was a, there was a gal, I, I worked, for, for many years within kind of the Christian world. And the Christian world is kind of a funny place. I mean, everything that you would imagine about the Christian world is everything accurate, right? To some degree. Um, and I remember working within this Christian environment, and there was this lady that every single day she would come in, and she was just like that. And it might have been just her personality. She was that person that was like overly bubbly, right? Constantly bubbly. And maybe I was able to recognize it because I can oftentimes tend to be dealing with my cynical side and this like pessimistic mentality inside of me as well. And so maybe it just didn't like go together too well. All right, following what I'm saying? All right, you get, don't judge me. But the point of the matter is, is this lady literally would walk around every single day and singing the song. I get this joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And she would just sing it over. And in my mind, I would be in the back working and I'd be like, I'm so sick and tired of hearing this lady sing this song because today is not a good day and she's annoying. And I remember in my mind just like, dealing with this. And so, again, this is not a plasticky joy. This is the idea of something that's profoundly anchored in the very character and the nature of God that's linked to our future that begins to be realized and lived at now in the present. And this is what we see with this whole idea, that it does involve 
in action. One of the ways in which you know that joy has gotten a hold of you and that maybe you've gotten a hold of joy is it results to some degree in some form of action or another. Again, it's going to look differently based upon personality, based upon uh, scenario in life, and so on and so forth. But at some point, it will begin to make its way out of you. You cannot help but begin to demonstrate or leak, if you want to think of it that way, leak joy. And we want to be those type of people, like not, again, in a plastically shallow type of a sense, but in a realistic, genuine reality that when we come into contact with this God that is profoundly powerful and good and full of love, who has not left us to our own devices and our own destruction, our own sinful ways, his own sinful proclivities, that he steps into our world and does something about it to the degree that we recognize it. And again, he's not finished there. He's bringing the entire world and the universe of all things that we know and see to some place, to some end where it will be renewed and remade and all things will be good. Where the writer of the book of Revelation says, whatever that will look like, whatever that day takes place, he says, every tear will be wiped from our eye. So which means that every sense of sorrow or sorrow-producing scenario in our life will be removed from us. So imagine that. That's the future hope of those who follow this God. This is what the invitation is. That reality does something to us. It creates an action within our lives. And we see that action take place in the lives of these shepherds because obviously they believed it. It moved them. They moved from the fields into the region where they were beginning to look for where Jesus was and they found him. Fourthly, I see this reality of amazement and we see this kind of in verse 18. Just listen. It says, and all who heard it, all who heard about what was going on, obviously this is shepherds, uh, who just come in from the field. They're sitting now with Mary and whoever else, uh, Joseph and whoever else was within this manger scene. And they're communicating. Here's, here's what happened. We saw these angels and we were absolutely terrified. And they told us not to be afraid. And they told us about the good news and the great joy that was going to come as a result of this good news. And we, we believe this. And now we're here. And as they're hearing this whole story, amazement begins to flood uh, their experience. And in verse 19 it says, And a Mary treasured, of all of these things, pondering them in her heart. Just think about that. So for, for them, obviously, they're, they're looking at the scenarios in that moment, and amazement floods their heart. I, I mentioned this earlier in passing, that the opposite of amazement is, is boredom. And I would suggest to you that one of the things that we have in our modern culture, with the access of anything information-wise at your fingertips, all right, Y'all, most of you guys have a smartphone. At your fingertips, you can have access to any form of information whatsoever, and even to some degree, stimulation. The question is, does, does that make us even more amazed with life and more amazed with reality and facts and death? And the answer is, is obviously no. Uh, and this is what I would suggest, is that we're wired to be in awe of something. Our hearts need to be amazed by something. This is one of the reasons why... If, for example, if you've ever been to like Yosemite, you can just come through that tunnel and the first thing you see when you come through that tunnel is this massive valley which kind of ultimately points to El Capitan and you're literally just like in awe. There's a sense of mesmerizing reality where it just overcomes you and you're like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely astounding. You're, there's a silence there's a sense of just like your, your, your words have been taken away momentarily, temporarily, because you are in awe of something. That emotion 
is, is powerful. And what I would suggest to you, we as human beings were wired to live like that. And for many of us, our interaction with God is described by way of boredom. Just bored. Bored with who I think or who I perceive God is. There's nothing about a revelation of who God is that amazes me. And what I would suggest to you is perhaps it's because we've just been feasting on bad data, false data, old data. We're living off of old information that needs to be updated and relived and re-experienced. And this is not to say that the Christian life is all based upon some sort of radical experience because there are moments where our emotions uh, you know, peak and, and valley, right? It's just the way that life is oftentimes. But what I would suggest to you is that when we find ourselves in perennial states of boredom, that's where often I think drip just ends up happening. And so the invitation from God is to see him in a new light. So for us, this is what the whole idea of Advent is all about. We don't just simply look back for the sake of looking back. We look back for the sake of recognizing God was faithful. That Jesus, this is what we've been looking at. We've been building upon this every single week. But all of these promises, uh, or I should say, when Jesus came into this world, these were the fulfillment of hundreds of years of promises prior to Jesus stepping into this world. One of the most extreme examples of this we saw was in... uh, Isaiah chapter 9, which was written 700 years before Jesus comes into this world. And when Jesus comes into this world, the writers of the New Testament, they make this long connection. They draw this line. They connect these dots between this is that which was proclaimed by Isaiah the prophet 700 years prior. And now God has made good on this promise. So for you and I, what we do is we look back at these realities. We're reminded of the fact that God was faithful back then. God kept his promises exactly, sometimes in creative ways, ways that wouldn't have necessarily made sense. But if you look back at the information, it's all there. In some ways, it's kind of like a puzzle. And this is the way that the Old Testament is sort of written. It's like hundreds of puzzle pieces, all right, on a table. Now, unless you don't have a, you probably, if you don't have a picture on how that puzzle is to be put together, good luck in trying to put that thing together. Because what you're, de- what you're dealing with is all these disconnected pieces and trying to figure out how they all get connected. But what we see in Jesus is the full, complete picture. And so what the New Testament writers did is they assembled all of these scrambled puzzle pieces and they said, this is the image that we've been looking at the whole time. We just couldn't clearly see it. Now we clearly see it. But again, to step one even further into the future is that we look back at these stories of how God so creatively and how wonderfully uh, fulfilled all of these promises that in the future, the question, will God fulfill the promises as he's described them to us as he did in the past? And the resonating reality is, of course he will. Because if God was faithful to do this in the past, why would he become unfaithful? Why would God somehow change? And the answer is obviously he, he won't. And so when we begin to realize the important fact that God will actually make good on his promises, this causes us to stand back not only by looking at past events, but also present circumstances in light of his faithfulness and future realities and be amazed that God is still doing things in this world. And that amazement begins to poke at, cause to come to life the sense of joy inside of me. 
And then finally, I see that joy, fifthly, um, also is deeply connected to this concept of worship. So take a look at Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 20, last little uh, passage in this whole large section. It says, and then the shepherds, they returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen, as it had been told to them. So we see the idea of them glorifying, praising God, worshiping God. Now again, we typically tend to think of worship as exclusively the idea of like singing a song to God on a Sunday morning or after service or whatever, whatever sermon or night of worship. And it can involve that, but it's so much more than that. It does involve this idea of bringing God through my articulation of words and ideas and giving myself to God and saying, God, I give you my loyalty, my love, my honor because of who you are. That's what worship is. Um, And again, we see, like, for example, in the book of Acts. Uh, I get, this was referenced in the video, but I want to read you the passage here. It's that, about the story of um, Paul. And it says that when Paul and Silas, these guys were missionaries planting churches, and when they were in this one particular city, there was, it says in verse 22 that this crowd joined in attacking Paul and Silas, and the magistrates, they tore the garments off of Paul and Silas, and then they gave orders to beat Paul and Silas with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. But that's not where the story ends. Because if you, get, if you just read that little section right there, uh, Paul the Apostle, all right, you think of Paul, like one of the most amazing like, dudes in the New Testament to do and accomplish many amazing things. Certainly a guy who is so faithful like this would never undergo such horrible circumstances. Well, apparently... That's not necessarily the case, right? There, but what we see that God is oftentimes with people in the midst of, he's always with people in the midst of the suffering. And that's a great thing to consider, maybe even for you, no matter what type of circumstances or suffering you might be encountering right now or adverse scenarios in life that are kind of pushing against your progress, that God is with you just like God was with Paul and Silas in the midst of their own torture, in the midst of their own inner prison. And this is where the story continues to get pretty amazing. Verse 25, it says, At about midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying and singing hymns to God. Think about that. In the middle of the prison, in the midst of the darkness, they begin to joyfully respond to God. You might say, they're not even in a prison yet. Doesn't, they don't need to be out of prison. Because joy is not linked to our circumstances. It's linked to the very character of God. And this is hard sometimes for us to see, especially when we are in the midst of adverse circumstances. It's hard for us to identify this or think about this or to consider this. Because oftentimes what keeps hitting us like wave after wave after afflicting wave is the challenge and the hardship of life. But what we're invited to see even in the midst of those continual waves, is the invitation to understand that God is a faithful God, that he will make good on all of his promises. And we know this primarily through the coming of Jesus, that God steps into this world. We see stories like this um, of people trusting God in these adverse circumstances which ultimately brings me to Pastor Wang Yi. All right, some of you are like, whoa, left field, where'd that come from? All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish on this guy. Um, so maybe you've been following the news, but Pastor Wang Yi is a Chinese Christian. He lives in China, he's a pretty well-known pastor. 
Um, this actually was a picture that was just taken from CNN, CNN's website, just from, I think, like two days ago. Uh, but he's been all over many of the news media things. And so what's happening, if you haven't been familiar, uh, China has uh, really cracked down on Christianity, as well as other religions, but primarily Christianity. And uh, they did this massive arrest of about 100 Christians in, the, in this particular region of China. And so Pastor Wang Yi, being a really uh, famous, well-known pastor of many churches and communities over there, um, again, communist China, had written this letter uh, several months ago. I think it was back in October. Because what he recognized was he kind of saw writing on the wall. He realized, like, this, this is not good in my country right now. The way the communist regime is beginning to crack down, uh, there's a very good likelihood I might get arrested myself. And if I get arrested, I might die. And if I die, um, I want to at least leave some words for my church community to consider, uh, to contemplate. Because I, I want to still be able to at least let my voice have some resonance um, even in either my absence or, or my, my death. So I, I want to read you just a couple quotes out of Pastor uh, Wang Yi's uh, admonition to the churches. And so what, what struck me in just reading his letter, again, you can Google it, check it out, the whole thing's on there. Um, I'm just reading you some excerpts on it, was the continual usage of the word joy or, or joyful. And again, this is, he's writing this um, anticipating being thrown in jail. Does that make sense? So... So we're looking back at something they wrote several months ago with his anticipation that this is not going well. I'm going to probably end up in jail. So here's to y'all. Here's what he says. I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked and lawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible, and God. My Savior Jesus Christ also requires me to joyfully, there's his word, joyfully bear all costs for disobeying these wicked laws. So he recognizes, like, look, I, I live in a horrible country that has horrible laws that are deeply dehumanizing to, to us folk, especially us of a religious minority. And he says, I'm going to criticize it because it's dehumanizing. It's evil. Therefore, because it's dehumanizing, it is evil. And so he doesn't have a problem to identify these things, but he says that, look, even if I'm going to be taken in, I will, by the grace of God, submit joyfully. And this will be my rebellion. This is shocking, because the rebellion is not one of uh, fighting back or physical violence or resistance. It's one that says, I will joyfully resist, but submit, but at the same time, place my confidence in Jesus. There's a tension here. You can see it. He goes on to say, if God decides to use the persecution of this communist regime against the church to help more Chinese people to despair of their futures, to lead them through the wilderness of spiritual disillusionment, and through this to make them know Jesus, if through this he continues disciplining and building up his church, then I am joyfully willing to submit to God's plans. For his plans are always, always benevolent and good. Can you say that? I mean, again, uh, in comparison, like we, we go through stuff, hard stuff sometimes. But again, here's a guy anticipating, I'm going to probably be in prison at some point in the future. Even in the midst of this, God's plans are good and benevolent. Then he finishes this little section, I'm done. If I'm imprisoned 
for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authorities' fear on my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully willing to help them in this way. But I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and the law enforcement. I hope God uses me uh, by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there's an authority higher than their authority and that there's a freedom that cannot restrain a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. So his words are profound. And they resonate with joy, even in the midst of very adverse circumstances. And what struck me when this came up on my, ironically, my Facebook feed, it was in the midst of all sorts of other Facebook discussions. I'll just be kind and polite. So what struck me was that in the Western church, where we have these freedoms, to utilize these freedoms, to either embark upon a means of uh, deconstructing our faith, we have the freedom to do that, or to blast nasty emails about Lauren Daigle and how disappointed much of the Christians... I mean, to me, I just like, oh, there's way more things that are of greater importance, guys. My church family, whom I love, that are both in process of deconstructing their faith and also at the same time deconstructing precious saints, shining brightly for Jesus, for the faith. That in the context of all this... This pops up, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, this has a bass note that deeply resonates because this story is one that the Bible is all about. It's about how to have joy, even in the midst of profoundly adverse circumstances, even in the midst of not obtaining or having something to sink your teeth into of substance right now in this moment. But the hope that one day that will come. This is what this whole season is all about. This is what we believe the Advent season points us towards. By pointing us backwards, we're ultimately looking at the future and saying the same God that stepped into our world 2,000 years ago, into history, to do something, to rearrange the furniture in this world, will one day step back into this world and make all things good. I hope you believe that. That's the invitation is to trust the same storyline that began thousands of years ago and is continuing to truck on. To trust this story, to let the character and the faithfulness of this God to deeply, profoundly reshape who you are and how you see life and your place in it. So I'm going to finish. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. I want to pray. I want to invite you guys to join with me. So how about we all stand? And uh, I just my invitation to you as we go into this moment of singing and partaking of communion to be reminded of what is God inviting you to trust him in? Where are the areas of adverse circumstances that you find yourself facing right now? That God is saying, trust me. Take my hand. Know that I'm with you. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't left you. I'm right here with you to trust this God that loves us profoundly. So I want to pray. We'll sing. We'll respond. If you have need for anything going on in your life, prayer, you just need a touch from God, maybe 
you're dealing with sickness, whatever, we love to pray with you because we believe that this God that came 2,000 years ago is also still actively wanting to move and work and change and reshape people's lives even in the present. So the invitation for you is to trust this God. So let me pray and we'll sing and respond. Jesus, thank you for your great love. And even now, Lord, we just want to turn our hearts to you and trust you. 